And now, a special high witness report from the field. Uncle Weed, Uncle Weed, this is the Home Office. Are you there? Are you there? Do you read me? Calling Uncle Weed, calling Uncle Weed. Calling Uncle Weed, do you read me? Chugling on in Vancouver's historic Strathcona district, and I've come to the to the home that's almost as much of a mm, rock and roll photography museum and workshop as it is a home to speak with Vancouver photographer uh, Bev Davies. Now Bev um, has agreed to sit down with me to, so I can ask all those questions I've wanted to ask as a fan of of your work since the early '80s. And uh, but first of all, I want to start with uh, with kind of where it began with me for your work, and that was as a young kid seeing pictures of DOA. And a lot of your work has been associated with DOA, um, and not certainly not all of it, but some of the most visible stuff. What's been working with this band? What's that been like over the years, and how did that begin? Uh, that was the first punk show that I went to as a DOA concert. I didn't take my camera. I just went with friends, and we j I just really liked the poster, which I actually have a copy of it, where it said... Vancouver, you thought you got rid of us, and they played like you know five inches inside of Burnaby, practically like a block inside Burnaby or something. And I just really thought the poster was cool and wanted to go to the show. And when I got there, I watched it, watched what was going on, and went, "Hot damn! I want to be involved in what can I do?" And the only thing that I knew that I could do was take pictures, because I was a graduate of the art school and I knew I was a photographer. Wow. And then from there, that kind of turned into a relationship with the band where you were able to kind of help them by shooting pictures as well as find your way as a photographer and be part of the scene. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, I don't think there was a moment if you had have asked me then whether I thought DOA was going to be as big as Nirvana that I would have for one second thought they wouldn't have been. I was, I was doing all of this to help promote a scene that I figured at some point then they would give me a lift up into world fame <laughs> you know there was a level of that um i mean i remember people would ask me why i liked doa and it was because i would always say because i have the most fun mm -hmm. it's it's the concert that i have the most fun at being there it just feels wonderful well part of you helping promote them as a band and build your reputation of, as a photographer um you've shot you know, album covers and promotional photos and so on for them, but also was it were able to share those photos with fanzines and magazines and stuff. And so really in a lot of ways, people's visual input to the Vancouver punk scene of those early 80s was through your photographs, I guess, eh? Yeah, um, I would think that much later in life I realized that I should be asking for money for this stuff, but I, it never occurred to me to do that at the time because my job was to take pictures and let people see them. And I need to correct you on the album covers. I've never had the front album cover of a DOA until Joe was releasing Hardcore 81, and he took one of my photographs that was on the back of the Hardcore 81 album and put it on the front of the, of the uh, DVD, CD, whatever it is, release. 
Yeah, now now that I think of it, of course that's that's right. But certainly all the candid pictures and all the backstage pictures and all the you know those seminal pictures that are so important to Vancouver history now certainly came from from your camera from those through many lineups and 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 so on. Is there one of your pictures of that band that sticks out as one of your favorites of all time? Probably that one that's on, on the skateboard. I think the skateboard's sold out now with um, Skull Skates, but the one of Randy in Chicago. I mean, that one photograph was worth flying to Chicago on my own coin to take the picture. There was other pictures, but that one, you know, you don't know. Like digital, now you got an idea what you're getting. Yeah. But then it was just, you know, put it all in the cans and get it back to Vancouver and take a look at it. It was, wow, I like that picture. Well, with DOA, you're a fan, but certainly um, your love of music and your enthusiasm of music really drives a lot of, of you know, the stuff that you love to take pictures of. And I want to kind of talk about the difference between taking pictures of bands you love and taking pictures of bands for the money, you know, kind of alluded to. But before I move on to that, I kind of want to talk about just some of the other bands that, that you love. I know you're a fan of Brian Jonestown Massacre. What do you love about them and Anton as a photo subject? Um, the music, absolutely the music. I mean, Anton is a, as a friend, as somebody that I know, is just a little extra nice to that, but it was the music that grabbed me. I went to see that movie Dig at the International Film Festival, Vancouver one, and I actually picked the movie out to go see by the photograph that they were running in the magazine. I just went, I want to see that. Then I started reading about it and thought, yeah, I really want to see it. It's about two bands, the Dandy Warhols. And I'd never heard of either of the bands. I might have heard of the Dandies, but definitely had not heard of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Didn't Google them, didn't look them up, just went to the movie and was totally blown away by their music, by the Brian Jonestown Massacre music. But it goes back even farther than this. You know, um, uh, gr you grew up in, in Ontario, and, and I, I seem to recall you had an affinity for Neil Young in your early days as a, as a photographer. Yeah, when I, when I went to Toronto... Um, I grew up in Belleville, and when I graduated from grade 13 high school, you know, they keep you there for an extra year just to make sure that you're old enough to go out on your own. And I went to Ontario College of Art for a year and got involved at that point in the Yorkville hippie, really early part of the hippie scene in Yorkville in the 60s, in the early 60s, and had the opportunity to see people like Joni Anderson, who was Joni Mitchell, um, Patrick Skye, just all the all the folk musicians that would come through town would play in the coffee houses, and if it didn't cost a lot, or one of them I worked in, so it was free. And then at some point, my friend Tannis, I lived with Tannis and Janine, and Tannis was a musician, and she wrote music. And Tannis came home one day, and she said, I met this guy carrying his guitar on the street. We should hear him sometime. And it was about a year later that we actually heard Neil. But she had seen him walk by and knew that he was someone that she wanted to hear his music. Wow. And he was in the Minor Birds at the time, all through that part. And that, what was it that predicated your move west? Um, I, I just went to California for a visit. And then I ended up here. And there was a lot of people that I knew that were from Toronto that were here. There was a real connection between Toronto and Vancouver in the 60s. It may have ended <laughs> during the punk time, but in the 60s there was a there was a, a hippie house on Thurlow called Thurlow Lodge that's across from, oh, what's the name of, anyway, 
that, yeah. that co-op that's down there right at Thurlow and Robson. There was one house there that we knew people from, and they would come and stay at the house that I lived in and back and forth. Now, as you kind of settled here in Vancouver and started to see this scene develop and you started to find your role in the scene, how was it that you would uh, present yourself to bands and venues? And it, was it as a fan, as I'm here to take pictures with you, there's something I can do to help you, or something else? There was, there was a lot of time in between those. So I came here and, and went to Emily Carr, which was Vancouver School of Art at the time, and really loved the music scene here at the time, the, what was left over from the 60s music scene in late 60s with um, Papa Bear's Medicine Show and, and um, the Trials of Jason Hoover and Mock Duck and Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck and there was a the Yellow Brick Road, all these bands that people would, you know, be excited like tonight, you know, they'd be going just the way people are talking about clubs now, is everybody going to the afterthought to see so-and-so? And they were really enthusiastic about the local bands, which was different than Toronto, because people bands had to go to New York and have somebody write a really positive article about them, and then they'd come back and it would be, oh, New York loves them, so we got to go see them, because they're going to be the next big thing. Here, people just went, and they just really liked, liked the bands. So I really liked that enthusiasm of it. Um, but I didn't, until 77, I didn't start photographing anyone. I took a, f a summer photo course, so I hadn't taken photography at the art school. I took printmaking and photo etching. And so in 77, I took, started taking pictures, but didn't really have anyone to take pictures of other than my family and, you know, the neighborhood and whatever. And then by 79, when I went to DOA, it was like, wow wow, do I have something to take pictures of now? And so that's when I started. And then you asked a question about approaching bands as a fan or... Bands and venues and promoters and so on, just kind of starting to put yourself out there into the, into the scene. Yeah, that, I mean, KK talked about that the other night, is, is you are your own company, so to speak. You are... The photo industry for for bands hasn't got to that point yet. So if you're not attached to a paper that... I mean, I'd love to sh photograph Brian Adams tomorrow night, but I don't dare ask because I'm not attached to a big enough newspaper or magazine to get a pass. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's still tied in that old school of they don't recognize photographers as artists. To, to get a hold of a band and say, I want to photograph you, you quite often get the, well, who are you with? Yeah. So I have a long list of people that I can, magazines I can say I'm with. They'll vouch that I am. But to just say, I want to do it because I'm an artist that wants to take photographs of bands, it's weird. It's still in an old school kind of thing. And they keep control over now, you know, the first three songs. So, of course, early w was starting with local bands that were just dying to have somebody ca come take pictures of them on stage. Just, please, please come. <laughs> we'll put your name at the door. Yeah. And then you kind of just turn into a fixture. And then, uh, you know, through years of doing this, you've amassed this massive collection of negatives. It's really something, um, while it's your personal collection, it's also kind of a rare slice of documentation of Vancouver history. 
Um, before we go and talk about the pictures, can you kind of give me a little bit of a landscape of some of the venues and what things looked like in those late 70s days when uh, in Vancouver? What kind of venues were you shooting at? What's, cha- what's some things that really stick out as urban changes to you? Um, well, I started, of course, shooting DOA and the local bands li- at places like Gambados and um, the Smiling Buddha halls, like the 179 Legion on Commercial Drive. I saw the Den- Dead Kennedys there in 1979 on November 22nd because no one would let them play November 22nd in America, so they came to Canada <laughs> and did a show there. Um, and I think they opened for, they were the second band in the Subhumans headline, that show. And it was just a matter of, of getting babysitters, arranging that kind of stuff. If there's anything that held me back, it wasn't necessarily the cost of the film. It was the time that I had to spend, and, and having a, having a, a 11, 12, 12-year-old 12 was a difficult thing to get out of the house, get away, find a babysitter, that kind of stuff. Now, you did manage to take him along on a few shows with you, and I recall you getting some uh, parenting, I'm not sure if you call it advice, but from Bruce Dickinson. Um, actually, actually, I have pictures of my son and Bruce Dickinson, but he didn't venture into the anything past how tall is your son now when I would show up without him because he was quite, Bruce is not that tall. So there's oh, pictures okay. of my son nearly as tall as him with him. But it was it was Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister oh, that gave me and it was a it was a Bruce Dickinson Iron Maiden Twisted Sister show. And my son was backstage and with me and we were in. Twisted Sister dressing room, and then Iron Maiden came on, and my son said, I'm going out to the show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and Dee Snyder took me aside, and he said, come here, come here, come here, come here. He said, you and your son like pretty well the same music, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's going to be really hard for your son to rebel. He said, that's... He said, pick something that he likes and just tell him that you don't like it. And that was before rap, otherwise it would have been <laughs> fine. <laughs> so I decided... That was good advice, and so the next time my son put reggae on, I said, oh, no, not that shitty reggae again. I can't stand that. <laughs> and there was uh, he just found this out recently that I had pretended I didn't like reggae for a while. But I was reggae fatigued anyway. <laughs> and sometimes, even though you started to build your profile and a lot of people knew your photographs, you had great relationships with a lot of bands, sometimes there would be mishaps trying to get access to these bands and, you know, something like, you know, band might be a, uh, an opening band with a bigger act, and so the bigger act is sort of controlling access. You got a situation like that where the band kind of came through and had to come out the back door of the venue to give you your photo op? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's the um, Motorhead and, um, oh, what's his face? Ozzy Osbourne. So Motorhead did an in-store, and I was at that where they were signing autographs and stuff, and I was taking pictures, so their management gave me my pass for the, that evening's show. And when I got to the show, they said, no, you can't come in. I said, yeah, I got the pass. I got the pass. And I, they said, but it's not their show that you haven't, you haven't been passed by Ozzy. And I said, I won't photograph Ozzy. And they said, no, you just can't come in the building with camera. You're welcome to come in without it. So the record company told Motorhead, and Motorhead came out to the back of the Caris Arena and did a photo shoot with me, a roll of film. And that was like early days with Fast Eddie and and um, Filthy Animal and Lemmy, just the three of them. 
And there's shots that I have never, the record rep was this young woman, tiny, and there's, I have pictures. She said, don't ever publish those, so I've never published them, but I have pictures of, of Fast Eddie holding her up in the air by the waist, kind of over top yeah. of his head. And she turned and looked at me while she was up in the air and said, don't ever publish these. <laughs> Well, throughout all these bands that you you shot over the years, you know, I remember uh, for for me as a as a young little punker, um, the Georgia Strait would come out every Thursday. You get it at Max, uh, the Max Convenience Store, and we always look to see what bands were coming up next. And there'd be one solitary picture that would exist from la- that previous week. And I was a kid. Me and my buddy would save up paper route money to get the ten dollar ticket to take the bus down to the York Theater, and then our whole chronicle of what was going on was that one Bev Davies picture in the Georgia Strait um, each week. But when I think about, all, you know, you going off and snap and roll a film in this band, doing that, you would see in several shows a week sometimes, and there'd be that one picture. Tell me about your work process and the workflow, what it would be like for choosing that, that one picture. Yeah, that, that's kind of what's exciting about scanning right now is I'm seeing all the ones that I never did print. Now, a lot of them are not really in focus, and they're not in in a style that I would want to show, but still it's like I would I would develop the film, I would hold it up, and I would decide right then which one I wanted to give to the straight. And, and sometimes there were more than one. But when I was working with Ellie O'Day, because she would do a column faces, and, and, and she, would, she would write about what she went to, which was usually totally different in <laughs> a lot of ways than me. We'd run into each other at the Commodore, but a lot yeah. of other stuff we wouldn't. And then I would just give the photographs of kind of the breadcrumb trail of what I had done that week. And I enjoyed doing that because I wasn't, f- no one assigned me anywhere. Yeah. But as, as you move up through into, because everything, I mean, it's strange to think that you can't just be happy where you are, you know, you have to kind of move up. So the bands, as the bands get bigger, like Duran Duran, I, would, I just found some pictures of them when Girls' School and, and um, Iron Maiden and Scorpions played. Duran Duran were also playing at the Commodore. Well, I couldn't go to that because I was going to the other one. So I went down at Soundcheck and just went in and got them to pose on the stage and stuff like that. And then the next time they came back, they were bloody huge. You know, they played the Coliseum and they had light show and they had this waterfall effect at the back and stuff like that. So as bands got bigger, it occurred to me that I wanted to follow in that sort of direction. But things got harder and harder to do as far as getting clearance and waiting to hear about it and that kind of stuff. And I didn't have as much time to do the local music. So it was like sort of eroding away the foundation of something. At the, there was some point where I realized that I had just been in a snip for two weeks because ACDC said I couldn't photograph them till their fifth show. And they opened here, so I couldn't photograph them till the second show in L.A., and I was in a snip for two weeks over that. And I thought, who cares? Like, they don't care whether I take pictures. I don't care whether I take pictures. It's all this thing, like, I want to take pictures. I would rather photograph people that care about whether I take pictures or not. So it was, I just stopped. At that point, I just stopped taking pictures for about 15 years. Wow. And then what prompted you to start taking pictures again? Um, Nardwar interviewed me. I ran into him at, at Joey Shithead's yard sale in 98. 
and he started interviewing me, which ended up to be the calendar we put out in 2007. And obviously Anton, Anton and the Brian Jonestown Massacre, kind of pulled me right back into wanting to listen. I mean, part of it is just not listening to music anymore. Just not, just, it wasn't on my radar. It wasn't something I was doing, you know. And how about the role of digital photography? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the other one I forgot about. I knew there was something else. <laughs> is when I was when I was photographing a lot of photographs all the time, and, you know, the straight had their deadlines, and I'd have, like, maybe five to ten rolls to develop and then decide which pictures I wanted to have in. I was seeing them on a weekly basis, and seeing them published was even more amazing to see which ones worked in the paper and which ones I wasn't happy with. And had this feedback all the time with this dialogue with myself about what I was doing and what I was after when I went to photograph someone. And once that was gone, that feedback was gone, then my films ended up to be like my parents' films. So they'd have summer vacation on them and Christmas holidays on the same roll of film. Sort of, not that yeah. bad. But um, And my friend Keith, uh, who's gone now, he he used to always force me to take pictures when we went we used to get down to the states and he would buy those little point and shoot disposable cameras or have just a little point and shoot come on we have to take pictures we're going on a holiday we're going on a holiday and i have a lot of wonderful pictures from those days colors you know just touristy shots or something but the digital when i bought a digital in 2002 boom amazing it was just amazing to to load them into the computer and look at them. I didn't spend so much time looking at the back of the camera because they were just little tiny postage stamp yep. thing at that time. But I would load them directly into the computer, and I started by 2004 or 5 around and posting on Flickr. I think 2005 I started posting on Flickr. And it's, 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 not, it's like a little bread trail again of my life yep. since I did that, you know? And then with the digital camera, I got to see something that I had never seen from you before, which is a color photograph. Every picture I ever saw, and I didn't at first I didn't know whether this was because they were in the newspaper, but um, you shot black and white almost exclusively for, for years, and it really became a distinctive style because, you know, for me, being a young fanzine publisher, I'd, I'd take a camera to show, thinking, oh, I'm going to be a photographer too. And I realized that you actually have to know about taking pictures in order to take a picture in a low-light, fast-moving environment with no flash or no control over the lighting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as it turns out. But uh, can you talk a little bit about from going into these shows from a, from a, you know, a camera-centric standpoint? What were you going in there and shooting with as far as cameras and film goes? Yeah, um, there was a show early on, well, probably by about 85, I guess, that I went to, maybe 84, maybe 83, that I went to see... Someone with the modernettes opening for them at the Commodore. And the modernettes were all dressed in black and white, checker and black and white. Everything they had on on the stage, the drummer, Mary Jo, and, and Buck, were dressed in black and white on the stage. And I went zipping out and bought a color film because I just <laughs> thought that was so cool that the only color that was going to be there was the, their, their skin and the background sort of thing. So it, every now and again I shot color but I didn't have the same control over it because I had to hand it over and have somebody else develop it. Um, when I bought my first digital camera, I was quite sick with the flu, so I had a little cheat list of what I wanted with a digital camera. So I wanted 
it to use regular batteries, not some weird square thing that you had to buy, right, whatever, um, and charge it up. So it had to use ones that you could just go in anywhere. So it used AA. And I wanted it to be the smallest version of that kind of camera that would do that. And I wanted it to switch to black and white quickly. So I could shoot in black and white. So I could just turn the dial and I shot in black and white. And that worked for a while. My friend Keith used it much later than I did. He kept, oh, I can spot his pictures if they're not of me. If they're of me, then I know they're his. But his other stuff is usually shot in black and white on, on, my, on my computer. But um, then I started looking at other people's work on Flickr, how you can, you know, look at other people's work and then yep. save it in your favorites. And I started noticing I wasn't saving any black and white ones. Like, they had to be really special black and white ones. I was just blown away by color. There's some people that have done amazing color work. And I, those are the ones that I was keeping. And then I got more inspired to shoot in color and shoot in color. Some of these venues in Vancouver that you've mentioned as we've been talking, you know, uh, for anyone who's grown up around here, instantly brings back some nostalgia. And the things that I remember about shows was, you know, it always comes back to the band that you saw there. But also just different venues have different feelings and different cultures within them. But it occurs to me that even for photographers, there's some places that were maybe more enjoyable to shoot because of performances inspired or lighting that was or the layout of the place is there any venues that stick out in your mind as particular favorites the commodore used to be mm -hmm. um it it's not now because it's so so tight it's just so i mean it's okay the lighting is really good the sound's good most of the time um the only shoot three songs really irritates the piss out of me because it doesn't always happen in the first three songs. The best part of the show is what you want to... You, know, you get to see it all. They don't mercifully throw you out. And they don't make you lock your cameras away. A lot of... I mean, David Bowie I went to see at BC Place Stadium, and they made you lock your cameras after the first three songs. And I used to That was summer of 83? 83, yeah. It was, I saw him after the um, US Festival in San Bernardino. He did the same... He did pretty well the same set. And I went in at sound check, and they, they let us go through and do a walkthrough so we would know how to do it because he was here a few days. And so we went in one day, and they let us walk around through and measure where we were going to stand and do all that kind of homework that we had to do that I would never have thought of doing, but they let me do it, so I went. And so I spent the whole time copying down the set list <laughs> <laughs> that was up on the stage because I wanted to know what, what was coming up next, so I enjoyed that. How about the Smiling Buddha? Oh, the Smiling Buddha was, was a nightmare to shoot at, <laughs> um, but really relaxed and, and, and um, no rules. You know, there were... There, there was no rules in the entire place except if you got near the owner, there was rules <laughs> near him. But anywhere else in the place, it was pretty lawless. How about the uh, the York Theater, or or kind of almost the reincarnation in some ways, the rickshaw? The rickshaw. Yeah, um, the York had mu much better. I'm surprised, but the York had better lighting than the rickshaw does right now. Because I think the rickshaw, even though they got Richards on Richards lighting. They're not using it to the best. They're not putting any spotlights on the people that are singing, and they're doing a light show at the back. 
and I'm just, you know, really fed up with, with shooting there because it should be really good. Richards on Richards was wonderful to shoot at, and it really, really helped that no matter what the rules were, that I knew the owner. <laughs> I guess Corolla knew the owner, Vincent. So whatever, when I remember the first time that I ran into somebody from Live Nation who said, who told you you could shoot in here the whole show? And I said, Vincent, the owner. You know, go ask him if you want, because it just it just was so comfortable. It was my clubhouse in the same way that the Buddha was my clubhouse, and a lot of good bands came through there that I got to see. Yeah. Now during those years when you weren't shooting bands, there was a whole other music scene that kind of developed. It got a lot of attention, you know, down the down the coast a little bit. But there was a lot of really interesting bands that kind of a resurgence in the early '90s. Do you uh, is there any bands that you wish you would have had a chance to shoot? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I, you know, I saw Nirvana. I went to see Nirvana. I didn't shoot. Um, I saw them at somewhere at the Peony Grounds, but not in the Coliseum, in one of those smaller double buildings. And I, I, I remember, I remember standing in the audience. And sometimes you don't know where to stand if you're not shooting because. You know, you keep trying to get to the front, and then yeah. you think, well, what am I doing that for, you know? I don't need to be... The sound isn't that good up here. And then you go to the back, but there's some part of me that keeps drawing me to the absolute lip of the stage. And in one of the processes of doing that, I, I looked at the back of 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 someone's shirt, and, and around the collar it said Chip and Pepper, and I thought, oh, my, that's my son. <laughs> and he was in the ma mash pit at the front. Yeah. And then I spent a lot of time that that night after I, you know, I, w I was kind of pissed that he didn't do the Weird Al Yankovic version of Smells Like Teen Spirit <laughs> um, or whatever Weird Al calls his. Um, and then I went and talked to the T-shirt people. And, of course, the T-shirt people are Nick from the Pointed Sticks and, and a lot of people that I know, probably Bud Luxford and, and at that time, and Dimwit. And I spent, probably that's the first time that I really spent a lot of time talking to Dimwit, just hanging out there while he was selling T-shirts. They weren't, you know, it was while the show was on, so they weren't that busy. And then afterwards, I thought, well, why did I spend so much time? Why didn't I spend time in at the concert? Why was I in the other room? And then Dimwit died. And I thought, yeah. I knew what I was doing. I was, I was connecting with somebody. Mind you, I mean, Kurt died also. Um, right around just a little bit earlier, I think. But I think that was important to spend that time with somebody that I knew. Um, all that 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 entire bunch of bands that came out of Seattle at the time um, were amazing music. And my friend Keith is the one that dragged it into the house and and said, "You got to listen to this. You got to have this in the car. You got to turn up really, really loud. You know, we have to hear this stuff." And otherwise, I, I, I can't think that I would have missed it, but I could have. Mm -hmm. I just could have missed it. Mm -hmm. And he dragged me to concerts. Um, also, I saw, you know, lot, lots of concerts without camera because I didn't have permission, but I saw stuff at the Commodore. Mm -hmm. A lot of those shows during those years were put on by Nardwar, who you mentioned earlier. And, uh, uh, I never met him. You'd never met him? No, I didn't meet him until 98. I just I had never met him till the and he was he was dressed normal, just totally normal. And it was Joey Shithead's yard sale and I had phoned Shithead and said, Can I bring a suitcase full of photographs that I have printed and sell them if anybody wants them, but just sit and let people look at them and stuff? 
And I think I sold one or two, and they weren't, ex I mean, they were $5 each, but I didn't sell very many of them. And Nardwar came and sat down, looked at all of the pictures and that were in the suitcase, listened to all the stuff when Randy Rampage and Brad Kent came and carried on, and we had fun talking and stuff like that, and just listened, and then gave me his card at the very end and said, I'd like to interview you. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, my God, you're Nardwar, because he was so quiet and different and <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. He was just very, very respectful of everyone that was around sitting there looking at pictures and he was collecting the stories. I didn't yeah. I didn't know what he was doing, but that's what he was doing is he was listening. Then the two of you worked together to put out a calendar and then that also turned into an exhibition, 144 punk rock photos. And you started to mm, certainly there was a lot of people who came out to that opening night who knew your work from back in the day. That was really your friends. But in the last couple of years since then, um, it seems like your work has been opened up to a huge new audience of people who weren't around this first time around. Um, and it occurs to me that um, a lot of these folks now are photographers. And back in the old days, there would be one camera, maybe two sometimes, mm -hmm. in these venues. Now you go to a show, and there's people streaming the show off their cell phone through Ustream on the internet. And lots of people are up there snapping away. People have huge cameras with expensive lenses and, and stuff. And it occurs to me, you know, it's for someone like you who's still there shooting the shows, um, <coughs> but also kind of opening up to this new audience, is there a role for you as, uh, as a mentor of some kind, both kind of someone who's shot these bands before and kind of been around the scene? Or are you just a fan and hanging out with and shooting bands like everyone else? All of the above. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have said, I have said a couple of times to Anton that I love the music that I love. You know, that's just it. That's the simplest way I can say it. Is the music that I love is the music that I love. And one of the things that he writes quite often is an artist is anything. When an artist says it's art, it's art. You know, that's it. Don't try to define it any other way. And I'm moving away from thinking of myself as a photographer for a newspaper or a magazine or an out, you know, and I'm thinking of myself more as an artist. Mm -hmm. I'm a and, and I heard that as I was working where I worked, there was a, a friend of mine that worked there and, and I heard him struggle with how he would describe me to somebody when he would introduce me to somebody. He'd go, well, she's a professional artist. Well, she's not exactly a professional artist now, but she used to be, but she, she's, you know, and then I thought, no, I'm an artist. You know, so when I when I go and take pictures, I don't I don't think of it in the same terms of of which is why it angers me so much that it's so restricted because they want you to sign away all the rights and they want to know who you're photographing. And when last time I photographed DOA at the Commodore, I wrote down when they said who what magazine are you photographing for? I said that I was photographing for DOA, yeah. and they questioned me on that. They looked at it and they said, what do you mean by your photographing for the band? And I said, well, I don't know, ask them. <laughs> and I mean, it wasn't that they, they said, you know, come and photograph for us. It just, I wasn't going to put down the name of any, restrict who I was, was going to let look at the pictures or have them or whatever. But in a lot of ways, who you've been shooting for, um, and maybe you didn't do this consciously, but you could have also written down there, I'm shooting for the future. And you in your suitcases <laughs> and these binders that are all over the house here, stacked up, um, are really this, yeah, this, this slice of Vancouver history. So besides an artist, you're also 
mm, almost by accident, a bit of an archivist, it seems. Yeah, I, I, w- I mean, people talk about how I was documenting something, and I wasn't. You know, um, things have changed. Digital has changed a lot. I have a camera on me all the time now. I used to carry a camera around. At the very beginning, I used to carry a camera around all the time in a, in a case, and over my shoulder, and my chiropractor told me to stop it. <laughs> and then I got a hard shell case that you could actually lock away. And um, then I was carrying around two cameras and a couple of lenses. And it was pretty heavy. And I didn't want to open it up on the street. I didn't want to open it up till I was ready to photograph. And then I would stand on it uh, to be just a little bit taller. And because um, I'm tall, but, you know, stages are taller. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just didn't do what I would have done if I were setting out to document stuff. Yeah. Is, is take, you know, here I am walking through the door. Here's what the door looks like. Here's what the front looks like. You know, all that kind of stuff that's I'm finding really quite missing. But one of the things that I do have that's kind of funny from the early, early stuff, I think it's funny anyway, is when I was loading the film in, I would I would leave I would leave the um, flash on, everything set up, and just turn the camera over and roll the film back and put the next one in, and and shoot off three frames, and then start shooting. And some of some of those, the two of them are crap because there was light on them, and the third one is a picture of my feet ah. somewhere. <laughs> so I have many pictures of my feet at the start of a roll of film. Will quite often have one of my feet or both of them at the very looking looking straight down at them. Oh, I wore boots there, I'll say. <laughs> well, I've noticed it's not just your own f- I haven't seen the pictures of your own feet, but I have seen an unusual amount of pictures of rock and rollers feet uh, feet in your collections. Can you explain the difference between bands who wear shoes and bands who wear sneakers? I like bands who wear shoes. <laughs> Except DOA they're exempt and drummers are always exempt. Because they're going to wear, because they use their feet so much, they're going to wear what's what's works for them as far as their job is concerned. And they're quite often barefoot. But um, Corolla and I have noticed that. It's just one of those things that we started noticing when we were at places where lots of bands were playing. Um, and we were at one of those outdoor festivals. Um, and we were sitting, we had a table that we were sitting at selling artwork from her gem gallery, and we'd take turns. We'd listen to the band, and then one of us would go up to see what kind of footwear they wore, and in ver- every single time that day, if they had shoes on, we liked them. If they didn't have shoes on, <laughs> if they had running shoes, we didn't like them. <laughs> uh, I also remember a story that you told me about when you were first coming up as a photographer where you wouldn't necessarily have film, but you would walk around and snap frames anyway. Was that just representative of your joy, or was that pure economic reality? Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't rock and roll stuff. That was, I lived in New York City for a while, and, and the um, people that I lived with, one of them had rented a, a camera for a weekend or something to do some shoot, and he gave it back to me with the information and told me to take and gave me money for the subway, um, and told me to take it back up to Forty Second and whatever up there in those movie or where you can rent that kind of equipment. And I decided to eat with the money <laughs> instead of taking the subway. <laughs> so I walked up there and back, and I took photographs, or at least I walked up there and I walked all through because we lived at Rivington and Ridge, 
And so I walked all along Houston and through Greenwich Village and took photographs all the way. And people sat and posed and people came out and posed and stuff. And I took pictures and there was no film in the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great, you know. I didn't have another responsibility that I had to deal with the film. And, yeah. and um, I had a good time. But that's the only time I can remember that, that, that I've actually done that, knowing there was no film. There's times that I've taken photographs and the film hasn't advanced. Uh, and that's always a heartache. <laughs> <laughs> to you, what constitutes the perfect shot when you're, you know, you've gone out to shoot a, a, a band for the night? Is it the collection that thrills you? Or is it that, always that one shot you say, ooh, I just nailed it. That whole night was about that one shot. You kind of mentioned this with the Randy Rampage in Chicago shot. Yeah, when I was photographing Anton last time he was in town with the Brian Jonestown Massacre at the Commodore, I was given three songs. I didn't ask him ahead of time. I talked to him ahead of time, but it just never occurred to me that they would actually kick me out of the pit. And um, what was really weird is that they noticed me in the pit because Frankie, the one of the guitarists, said, Hi, Bev, from the stage at like the seventh song. And then they looked at me, and then they looked at my pass, and they were, they decided to kick me out. And um, But just prior to that, not that long before, maybe like six photographs or seven photographs before that, Anton gave the whole audience the finger kind of awe. He was sort of off-center, leaning forward, and, and just where I was standing, I got it. And I looked, and it was there, and I thought, this is it, you know? Every, everything else is gravy. I have the photograph that I want. Nice. So is an element of this, uh, it's just really capturing the moment? Is it capturing the eyes? Is it capturing the, the spontaneity? Is there anything you can put your finger on, or do you just know, know it's art when you know it's art? Yeah, well, there's that, but I remember when I was developing in the trays black and white photographs, if you could, if they made sense in the tray in the dark room with the orangey colored light coming up, if you could read them, because I always think of photographs as being able to read them quickly because how the eye moves around them is really similar in a way because it moves around. And if you could read it in the tray when it was coming up, it worked well in a newspaper. If it was confusing, then I moved on to something else because I knew that one wasn't working. And sometimes you got to do that. Like you got the record company and they're giving somebody the gold record or the platinum record and they're all lined up with the big smiles and stuff. You know, that's, that's a crappy picture, but it's got to go in because it is what it is. Um, but other pictures work because of the empty space that's in them and the, the black and white space like what's left white and what's left black and the shape of it. And, and there's a, a lot of sort of sensibility about what it is that works in those pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I mean, I understand, I just understand that on some other level that's just automatic to me. But one of the things I used to do when I would be going to concerts or driving around on the bus, when I used to take the bus all the time everywhere, is um, I and I still do it out there now, is I take pictures constantly in my brain. So you'll be sitting on the bus, and someone will come up, and they'll be putting the money in the thing, and you'll be framing with your mind the picture the whole time and deciding whether you're going to shoot it up and down, whether you're going to get some of the some of the bus driver in, whether you're going to wait till the person's putting the money in. or the You know, and all these decisions are being, and there's no camera. You're not taking a picture. You're just taking the picture with your mind. I do that all the time. While you still shoot bands, I also notice from your Flickr feed and so on uh, that you take pictures of just your regular breadcrumbs of your daily life, your cat, the park, 
door frames, interesting things you come across. Tell me about what you like to take, what you like about Vancouver and what you like about your neighborhood and what inspires you when you're out and about. Oh, um, I, I don't I don't know. I really don't know. It just inspires me. Like every one of the things that I take pictures of and you'll find a few of them on there but I don't take a lot is I really like the shapes that I see of of um bird droppings on the on the sidewalk. <laughs> so there's a few of those, but it's just like to decide when you come up to it which angle like it's like I'll be walking along. Usually I take exactly the angle I find it at cuz even though I walk around the whole thing trying to find a better angle, it's usually the first one. So it's like, wow, that looks like a deer with double antlers and four feet. You know, it's a bird. It's a bird dropping on there. So finding that kind of, you know, and and then I believe like anyone can take photographs of you know, if there were 50 people and we all went out for a walk through the same street, we would take different photographs of 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 the same stuff because people will see it in different ways mm-hmm. and there's that decision do i want the flower on the left do i want you know if i'm taking a picture of the flower garden and there's green over there do i want the color on the left do i want it in the middle all that you know you can you can think it beyond to the point that you don't even take the picture because you can't find the perfect picture to take now, you mentioned, we talked about the uh, working with Nardwar on that first calendar that turned into the exhibition. That was, I mean, that was a, a, a pretty cool. It, it, didn't, it didn't necessarily turn into the exhibition because that was Corolla. Okay. So sort of by making that profile at the same time, she was, you know, starting the gem gallery and stuff. And Corolla and I had known each other since the um, punk days at the Smiling Buddha. So she decided that that I should have a show of photographs at her gallery. And so that, though it, in some ways, Nardwar was responsible for sort of pulling me out in one way, so was Corolla. Mm -hmm. Then from there, you went on to do another show more recently at Chapel Arts. Uh, But this was fewer photos, but you did an incredible way of displaying them. Yeah, um, someone gave me um, a bunch of shelves that were from gas town somewhere and you're not getting them back whoever they belong to <laughs> they were thrown away and they had their their shelves that are hollow metal so that the bottom you can reach up in the bottom of each shelf and so it's flat on the top and it has four holes in the corners and um corolla got those for me she found found the woman that was trying to throw them away and said you've been talking about metal because up to that point all i've been talking about is i want the show to be on metal i want the show to be on metal and i hadn't figured out how to do it yet because I'm an etcher, so I had wanted to do etch, you know, like not the paper, but the plates. Then I'd gone to a company that was made press plates, and I'd talked to them about just burning the image on the press plates because they, because it's offset printing, the it, it's actually a po- you know it's a positive version of it. It's not backwards because it's offset with blankets, and they said, well, it comes in pink on gray, and I thought, oh, that doesn't really work, pink on gray. And then these these metal plates came up. So I had 25 of them, and I used 24 of them and put the hardware on the corners and, and had commercially printed peel-and-stick version of my photographs. So each each plate had what looked to be a photograph, but it wasn't on paper. It was on plastic. Mm-hmm. So I think it's archival. Yeah. Well, they look, they look stunning and, and, and really industrial and, and heavyweight, and, and people really felt like, you know, there was something substantial to this as, as well. Um, next up, you're, you're starting to put the seeds for a third calendar? 
Yeah, Nardware and I are doing another calendar, and um, we'll have more to, to announce about it right now. I'm just trying to get him. He's whining about the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> no, Nardware doesn't whine. We all know that. <laughs> he's he's reminding me about the pictures. So we're doing doing some of them. I just finished doing for a man that's putting out a book in, in Seattle about much music, sure. MTV, whatever that is down there. Yeah. Um, and he's done some interviews and stuff, and he gave me a long list of, of who he wanted, and I've got him just about everything. I'm missing the John Doe one, though, and I'm thinking I should should actually find one of, of John Doe and X and send it down, because I have, I have nice stuff of that. Yeah, because your collection doesn't just include these local punk bands, obviously. It's it's also early shots of, of artists who went on to international notoriety, like Madonna, uh, Bono from U2, and and some of some of these other artists, I suppose there's David Bowie pictures in your collection that I personally like to see as well. Yeah, um, nothing nothing special with him. <laughs> he just had that weird suit on. <laughs> but I did get to go to two of the um, video shoots of the um, I don't know, like he did a show here and then he did a video shoot yeah. uh, out at the Coliseum, and I got to go both nights to that. And the first night that I went there was this young woman sitting in the seat right next to me. And she, as soon as someone walked on the stage, it was nothing to do with the band. They were checking the equipment or something. She started jumping up and down and screaming and jumping up and down and screaming and jumping up. And I thought, oh, my God, like David Bowie's not out on the stage and she's going to be like that. So I said, would you like to go down to the front? <laughs> and she said, yeah. So I had a pass that would get me down to the front if I had wanted to, but I couldn't take pictures. But I had a pass that got me everywhere but backstage. So I just took her along with me and just showed the pass as I went along and left. Out. And every now and again while I was watching Bowie, I could look down and see her jumping up and down and screaming. And I'm so glad she wasn't beside me. <laughs> <laughs> what other treats do you have in your suitcase that people wouldn't really expect? Something like Rick Springfield maybe? Oh, I can't find those. <laughs> I'm supposed to do. I mean, I I I listened to a, vi a video of his. I went on YouTube and I looked him up so that because I had some pictures, I had some negatives. And I thought maybe this is him. I'm holding. I'm sitting on the bed still. I haven't even got up this morning. I'm holding up the skylight, going, "This might be him. This might. I better look him up." So I looked it up, and he does Jesse's girl, and it was really touching because Keith used to always do it as Jesse's squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like all I could hear was squirrel. Every time he said girl, I heard squirrel. <laughs> but he used to sing Jesse's squirrel. Not not all the words to it, but just that, that chorus part where he comes back to Jesse's squirrel. He used to also sing my squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you like all these binders and negatives to turn into? A book. <laughs> I think a book would be really yeah. good. But I I don't know. I mean, I really don't know because I've been so careful what I've let people see. Um, I, I'm not willing to give up that kind of control. I want to still have... I never gave people negatives. I hated giving people negatives. I hated doing fashion. I like doing runway. I wouldn't mind doing runway. But I think as soon as you get into it any depth, then you're into fashion. And fashion is the hair has to look good because there's a hairstylist. The makeup has to look good because it's a makeup artist. The clothing has to look good because, you know, I mean, there's just too many people that want to see all of them. Yeah. 
And then somebody will say, well, that's my favorite. And somebody else will say, no, that's my favorite. And let them work it out. At least with bands, you know, they came up. That was their presentation on stage. Really early on, I decided to not take photographs of people doing illegal things. Mm -hmm. And that was a DOA concert that I went to in December 1979 at UBC, and people tore down the curtains, and I put my camera away. Like, I stopped taking pictures because I didn't want to have the photographs that the police would use. And so I don't know what I would have done in Toronto because some of those photographs are so the most amazing photographs I've ever seen in my life that came out of the Toronto G20. And yet if I had been there, I probably would have taken... You know, I mean, I don't know, like that one of the guy jumping up and down on the car, the police had that photograph. If that was my photograph, I would have sent them a, a bill for $50,000 but it wasn't my photograph because I wasn't there. But they had him out on the 10 Most Wanted. Does anybody know this guy? Like, they were using Flickr's photographs. They were using the photographs that people were posting on Flickr to um, put them out on 10 Most Wanted people and get people to squeal on who they were. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to tell the people of the world about you? No. <laughs> um... I don't. I don't know. Let, let's take a break, and maybe you'll come up with some some other stuff. All right. What was the name of your fanzine? I'm trying. I was trying to remember that from last week. What was the name of your fanzine? Vom. I I had copies of it there. I should have showed you. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. and you've given me a copy of it. I just couldn't remember. I thought, well, you didn't do Schizoid because that was Scott, yeah. and you didn't do Idle Thoughts. Oh, did I? Have I ever told you the Idle Thoughts story? Uh -uh. Well, the guy that I lived with, Phil. Um, at the time when I was doing this, because he's still really bitter about all his punk rock stuff. On one level, he's like, oh, my God, it took my woman away. <laughs> and it did. <laughs> but um, I came back from, I think, Ontario visiting my parents, and he said, there's some phone calls for you. You got a phone call, and you got a phone call from some guy that wants to know whether you want to put photographs in idle sluts. I don't think that's the kind of work that you would want to do, work for a paper called Idle Sluts. And I said, that's thoughts, idle thoughts. That's Len. He said, no, 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 I'm sure he said sluts. <laughs> so there was a whole little little, a little, little, little bit of a riff, disconnect there. A little yeah. riff there. Then I went, I went somewhere and came back a few days later, really few days, like within a few days. And he said, there was a phone call message from Mad Dog, and he wants to know whether you want to go to Edmonton with him. He said, why would you want to go to Edmonton with Mad Dog? Why would he be phoning? Who is he? So there was a whole little riff with that. <laughs> and I phoned Mad Dog, and what Mad Dog had asked him was, if I was getting a ride to go see DOA in Edmonton, would there be enough room in the car or whatever way I was getting for him to go? Yeah. Real sensible thing, right? So that riff settled, settled down a bit, and then the phone rang, and it was Art Bergman. And Art Bergman said, I wondered if you could come and take nude pictures of me tied up with a phone cord on Kitts Beach. And I said, just a minute, I'll ask Phil. And I said, Phil, can I? Because by then, like, it just was all in the open, like, yeah. you know. And, and my condition with that was I wouldn't tie him up that he could, he could undress the distance that we were taking. And it was down near the um, planetarium where it's all rocky and stuff like that with the city in behind. And it was supposed to be the cover of Hawaii. Oh. 
I think I think one of the things, and I know with that, they went with a guy that had a Hasselblad, a square format camera. And I think a lot of times album covers were always thought as square yeah. format cameras. You know, like the person would take a photograph or present it. I never present, I never cropped. So it wouldn't have occurred to me to give them a square format for something. And so they, when they saw the square formats, Jerry Barrett and people picked somebody else's photo because it was square for the album cover. And I would get the back because they would use a lot of which was okay, you know. <laughs> I think that's maybe a little bit cooler. Ne- never the cover, always the back. <laughs> that's punk rock. <laughs> I can see you in the air Deviating from your flight path The oxygen is thin up there Gravity is on the warpath I think You and I will go far I think You and I will go far I commend you on your fine taste in listening to Bev Davies' wonderful stories. For the record, this is present day Dave. That interview was recorded in August 2010. There's been a lot happened since then. Obviously, Bev continues to shoot bands, and I have done a couple other creative projects featuring uh, her photography work and her stories, including an exhibit at the aforementioned Smiling Buddha, formerly Cabaret, now Cafe, which sells coffee and has a skateboard ramp. Uh, Video on YouTube or at DaveOStory.com. YouTube slash UncleWeed, whichever you want, uh, features her exhibit of Vancouver punk shots printed on paper and glued to the walls. Well, just glued to the walls, just like that. And, and you can check that out in the video. It's quite enjoyable. And then there's also a panel discussion with her and KK, Chris Krug, uh, kind of a new school rock and roll photographer at a conference called Northern Voice. I do a panel where I went deep into both of their archives, comparing shots, talking about how photography builds community, and pairing their photos like a one in trees, as it were. And it's pretty remarkable because there's shots of Iggy Pop 30 years apart, and there's shots that have incredible parallels together with Bev's black and white style and Chris Krug's cross-process color style, a lot of that, uh, a lot from South by Southwest and other music things. But you can see the continuity that goes through this tradition of photographing bands for the purpose of art and as a fan but also seeking to build an audience to tell their stories so you can find all that stuff at davostory.com there's a few other Beth Davies things that I'm forgetting but I do thank you for listening along all right there's also the calendar she did with Nardmore which are now collector's items but sometimes still available and the other projects I mentioned were the 144 punk rock photographs at Gem Gallery, there's a photo essay of those, and the Play It Loud exhibit, of which I now own the Joe Strummer print from the U.S. Festival, mounted on metal shelving, and blah, other stuff. Follow Bev on the internets, too. (laughs) 